the kingdom has been inaugurated. It yes. is here. Yes. And now you have to work out how to live in this yes. kingdom. You're not building a kingdom into a place where it will exist in the future. You're getting used to living in this completely and radically new reality. Welcome to the Stand Firm podcast. I am Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church, Louisville, Kentucky, here as usual with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Very good. Great, Nick. Great. I'm doing well, too. I'm undefeated on the flexi-pong table so far. <laughs> uh, my wife got me all the way to 1919 last night before I was able to scrape out the victory. So in this one small area of my life, I remain faultless and not at all in need of redemption. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope uh, it stays that way. <laughs> amen. Amen. Uh, J.D., you are um, at the beach in Alabama, like mere feet from the sand, so your internet connection is uh, quote-unquote janky, so we're going to do our best to fit you <laughs> into a, our conversation. That's a technical term. I <laughs> learned that in, in J school. That's right, way back in the day. <laughs> J school. <laughs> but we're going to do our best um, to have you as part of our conversation. It may take some editing magic, but we'll do what we can do. Um, I wanted to talk today about the so-called kingdom mandate. This is a phrase that I think has a couple of related meanings, one with regard to the world and one with regard to the church. The first and most obvious is related to the Lord's Prayer. We pray each week this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, and part of the prayer that he showed them was, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Christians are called, according to kingdom mandate thinking, to participate in getting that kingdom to come into the world. I actually found a quote illustrating this in uh, the newsletter of some random church that I found online. This is not an Anglican church, um, but this is a quote from their newsletter about the kingdom mandate. Quote, we have a kingdom mandate to be a visible demonstration of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven where kingdom truths, values, principles, priorities, and ethics are not only taught, but embraced, believed, and initiated in life every day. We believe the Spirit of God is summoning God's people to be united in faith and bring kingdom transformation in today's culture and in the marketplace, invading the power centers of our nation and restoring righteousness and justice, that the blessings of God may once again be upon our land. So a mandate to bring God's kingdom into the world. But there is a second way that I've heard kingdom mandate being used. This is related to specifically to the church. Churches, we are told, have a mandate to reflect the kingdom of God, especially in terms of race. Revelation 7-9 is used as the ideal for this, the heavenly worshiping community drawn from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Because the church will be multiracial in heaven, the church on earth, local churches, have a mandate to strive to be multiracial too. So, a kingdom mandate in the world and in the church. Where do you guys want to start? Well, I think one of the basic errors in the, in the way of thinking is taking a kind of description of what God is doing in the world through the church and turning that description into kind of a command or a mandate. So, Christ has established his kingdom on earth in his incarnation. He is the one who has begun to spread that kingdom 
through the preaching of the actual gospel, which is not, not that Jesus is king. That is not good news for someone who's not submitted to him. <laughs> if you're not a believer in Jesus, the news that Jesus is king is very bad news. That doesn't help anybody. The kingdom, the actual kingdom is spread as the, the good news of what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection for sinners is proclaimed, and people are called to repentance and faith, and they're joined to the only place on earth where, uh, at least in part, the, what, uh, the, the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven, and that's, and that's the church. As people are joined to the church, the king that the kingdom expands, and so I, I guess in some ways you can say there's a mandate to spread the kingdom in the sense that there's a mandate to spread the gospel. And as the gospel is spread, people join the kingdom. What there's not is a is is some kind of political call to yeah. Christians to go out and tear down systems and re-erect quote unquote kingdom systems. That's that's something that when we we if we think it's our calling to do that, I think we're going to end up doing a lot more harm than than good. Uh, I think the Christian in the in a, in a in a secular system can definitely work for change in that system and should, um, but but the reality is the primary mode and means and instrument by which God is changing the world is the church itself. By people coming, to, being brought to faith in Jesus Christ, united as one body in the church, with every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and in the church, uh, the world sees that city on the hill and the light um, in the darkness. That's right, and we have—I mean, we have you know two thousand years of history to look back and see how this works, because you know the New Testament is not a a um, you know like the anarchist cookbook to tear down the the Roman uh, government or whatever you know the New Testament clearly defines um, the, the 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 gospel and then gives us some insight into the type uh, problems that will beset um, sinners who are saved by grace you know the relational and uh, different levels of authority and, and all of the sort of problems that come with with building the church and yet that's exactly what happened and so the building blocks um, of the kingdom you know the reconciled human male and female to God and then the sort of reconciled families um, that then begin to to expand and spread from you know family to 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 extended family to towns to cities to nations and ultimately to the world. We see that the way that that works is from one heart united to another, and it begins to actually reflect something of the kingdom. You know, Jesus Himself said, "You know, you uh, feast uh, that the kingdom is with you." You know, in His presence, and there was a sense of of um, reconciliatory love of God. You know, embodied in Christ for the world. That, that people obviously uh, missed when he when he was killed. <laughs> We're like, what happened? And then when he was raised again and sent by the power of the Spirit to be shed forth in the hearts of all who would come to faith in him, well, then that that changed the world. It really did. And so you don't see Paul listing, you know, sort of uh, meeting groups about how to infiltrate various political operatives, you know, systems in the Roman government to take it down. He, he begins to preach the gospel to explain what this will look like. You who have died to sin, how can you continue to live in it and so forth? And then, um, you know, fast forward, you know, four or 500 years and you have um, these, you know, what is a, um, the scene to leave called, you know, anti-fragile you know, uh, sort of institutions 
that um, have been wrought by the blood of Christ himself and, and established by the power of the Spirit that are unshakable in the midst of, of what actually is the, um, the, the, the ebbing and flowing of kingdoms of men and women um, throughout history. You know, that the church will remain unshaken, um, but, but the, the chariots, you know, the, the horses and chariots of the world will continue to fail. So yeah. when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we're actually asking God to do something, not encouraging each other to. And the thing that we can do to participate that is to announce the great and wonderful things that Almighty God has done in Christ. Yes, yes, exactly. And I think, I think that's where, um, where the, the, the kingdom gospel Probably they, someone who who, say, who who does want to preach the quote unquote quote, kingdom gospel would, would say yes. We go out there and proclaim, but again, what they're proclaiming is Christ has been has has ascended and has been has been made king over the cosmos, and so now uh, we infiltrate as as as, uh, as JD was saying, we infiltrate and overturn overturn the systems. It's taking what is written as a promise and turning yeah. it into a law. That's right. I mean, Paul, the Apostle Paul gets into this in Romans 13. I mean, I point people to this all the time because, you know, lo and behold, even in the early church, there were people who thought veganism, and this is actually the case, uh, was got you closer to God. You know, this is one of the things, you know, people that thought uh, certain dietary restrictions would make you more spiritual, among other things. <laughs> and the Apostle Paul, when he's addressing people in 13, 14, 15, sort of the, you know, the, the, the paranesis, the fine, you know, after he's given this sort of theological account for all this stuff, he says in verse uh, 14, 17, he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You know, so it's not a matter of, you know, what they were trying to establish by their customs or their, what they were abstaining from or what they were ingesting, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy. Like that's the kingdom of God, righteousness with God through Christ, peace, which comes on account of that, and finally joy from the Holy Spirit that has been poured into our hearts, which he talks about in Romans 6. And so, where that exists, you find the kingdom. And, you know, if that's not, quote unquote, enough for you, then perhaps you may not have found it yet, you know, because for um, that, that, that once that is the air within which you, you operate in this kingdom, well, then it colors and touches every aspect of your life from your own personal life and piety, you know, as you're, you're often your spouse, or you're honoring your father and your mother, you're caring for your children, you're, you're doing the kingdom work from the place of having been made righteous, the peace that comes from that, and then infused with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's, that's how this works. That's right. And that is how there's actual, actual world change that takes place as a result of of the gospel, because, you know, take, take the, the slave owner in Paul's day who, who is taking communion with his slave, who's now his brother, right? That's going to have an impact in the way that he treats those who are in his household. He's no, the slave master relationship is completely transformed. And ultimately that the gospel and that slave owner's heart is kind of a yeast that over time does away with the institution of slavery. That's, right. that's, that's, that's right. how it works. But it's, it's, a, it's a process that God does through individual human hearts being changed and the, the structure of which they're, in which they're, taking part has changed. And the process is not the actual building of the kingdom. If I'm hearing you right, Matt, the process is sort of getting used to this new truth 
the kingdom has been inaugurated. It yes. is here. Yes. And now you have to work out how to live in this yes. kingdom. You're not building a kingdom into a place where it will exist in the future. You're getting used to living in this completely and radically new reality. Yeah, and I think it's very much to that point, Matt, Matt with, the, with the individual hearts. It's, a, it's, it's not necessarily a bottom-up uh, sort of idea, but it's more like the, the picture I have is that it's a, sort of a heart out in respect to these individuals. I'm always reminded of this, um, because again, we have, we have the history, and, I, and there's a book called The Triumph of Christianity, which I commend, and I often recommend it to people. It's, it's very readable, and it's, it's um, well done by a guy named Rodney Stark, and he has a whole chapter on how um, this revolution of the heart affected, uh, and he goes through the entire way that, like, um, one of the early evangelistic sort of witnesses of the Christian people in the church was literally the fact that husbands didn't beat their wives as much, you know, that they took care of their children. And so all of a sudden, you had these people going, hey, Sunday mornings, like my husband kept going to this thing and they eat this stuff and like they talk about this guy and I'm not sure what's going on, but let me tell you what's happened. Like he's not, he's, he's a kinder man. You know, he's actually taking care of our children and he didn't even think this one was his, you know, this sort of thing. And it's like, and it's, it was an amazing revolution that over time, um, you know, slower than we would have possibly wanted it, we think, but nevertheless, over time, it has in fact changed the world and established at the very least, um, embassies of the kingdom in every corner of the world. I mean, literally, that has been the case. And so I think that part of the problem with thinking that we are establishing a kingdom is goes back to the age-old problem of a faithless lack of trust in God and his providential timing and, and, and sovereignty over it. You know, we want to take it into our own hands, like Peter with the sword and Gethsemane or, or perhaps Judas, you know, when he was even when he thought, you know, Jesus wasn't, wasn't the man for the job. Um, we have this idea about how things should look and should work. And we want to sort of take the, take the wheel, you know, like Carrie Underwood or whatever. <laughs> um, and, um, and I think that, you know, you see the history, particularly the last couple of centuries of the church, you know, as the church loses confidence in the, the providential workings of God in history and sees um, it sort of becomes more secularized or more horizontalized than the, the intrusion of the church into sort of the, um, the machine of building the kingdom on itself is much more prevalent, you know, and you have, and you have churches, some churches today that are indistinguishable from PACs, you know, or sort of community action centers because they have just essentially decided that what the work of the church is, is to uh, work to build the kingdom in its own image. Uh, I think one of the inevitable results of that is if you, if you decide, okay, our task is to go out and change the world, is you've got to have a program. You've got to, you've got to decide on a political avenue to do that with. And so, you know, and that just then depends on, you know, what, what your politics are. Do you, are you going to, uh, make the world more leftist or more rightist, or how are you? Uh, you're you're going to wed Christianity to some political means to enact change, because in and of itself, what we'd have to preach to the world is the law, the God's law. What's the effect of that? That's going to change people's hearts. But say to uh, to to change a, a political system is going to require latching onto or glomming onto a, an ideology. Or political philosophy, and so in the '80s, you know, we, we're going to make the we're going to make the government God's country, and so we're going to join the moral majority, and we're going to have, you know, God and the Republican Party entwined together as one, and uh, let's get Pat Roberts up there as president, and, and then and then you know, switch now to hey, let's be woke, let's repent of our whiteness, let's 
right. figure out how to get, um, let's figure out how to, how to uh, undo, be anti-racist in the ideological sense. And all of yep. that's now wedded to, or, or, or glommed onto, attached to, uh, attached to the law. So inevitably, if you if you think your task is to change the world, you're gonna add to the to the law, and you're gonna distort the gospel. Yeah, that's right. And if you hear these amazing statements, or what is said, um, you know, about any manner of sort of fundamental human uh, relation, uh, any of these things, but we were not really sure about any of that. But what we are sure about is that a 2% increase in carbon fuel emission tax will help change the world. Or like what we are sure about is if we outlaw, you know, if we make the PG-13 ratings harder or higher, then, then that'll happen. These people sort of pontificating in about, um, about all the ways that if you could just get with our program, then we will change the world. And invariably, people that are outside of the church hear them saying, well, you're just, you're, you're saying things a little bit less sophisticatedly than I do. And you're also having to take, you know, a little bit more overhead off the top for our, our political action committee. So why don't we just cut out the middleman, i.e. the church, right, and just get right. on with the business of actually doing what apparently you think the church does, which is what I've been doing the whole I'm time. Going. Why do we need That's Jesus? right, on my own. That's right, like the Peace Corps. You know, like why do we need to bring like, the Peace Corps? I mean, again, it's no denigrating the Peace Corps, but the church, the fact that many people think the church, the work of the church and the work of the Peace Corps are, um, you know, indistinguishable is uh, is a judgment on, on the church, not the Peace Corps. You know, and I think that's where... Um, I think that you're exactly right, man. I think that's what, when you, when your goal is systemic change, um, fundamentally from a church perspective, well, then you have to begin to deal with, with things that are outside, uh, the preaching of the gospel itself. And you're also evincing a distinct lack of trust that that in and of itself will ultimately affect change. And the truth is that even if the change you're after is systemic, the most central cog in our system is the human heart. Right. And when the church decides to go after the ends of the arteries rather than the heart, it is actually not going to affect the change that we seek. And counterintuitively, when you go after the actual hub, the actual human heart, then you actually see the downstream changes that you wanted to see in the first place. I want to read you guys a quote here. Real quick, um, this is from Carl F.H. Henry in his um, Aspects of Christian Social Ethics. Remember, as I'm reading this, that he wrote this in 1964. So when, when he uses words like contemporary, he's, he's talking about 1964. But I do think this is an illustrative quote, which I th would like to get you guys' reaction to. He says, quote, In our country, as I see it, Protestant forces seeking a better social order in America have mostly neglected the method of evangelism and the dynamic of supernatural regeneration and sanctification. Instead, they have resorted to a series of alternative forces. At first, moral propaganda and education, then legislation, and more recently, nonviolent public demonstrations and even mob pressures against existing laws. Now, it is true that the church has a legitimate and necessary stake in education and legislation as a means of preserving what is worth preserving in the present social order but it must rely on spiritual regeneration for the transformation of society. The neglect of this latter resource accounts mainly for the social impotence of contemporary Christianity. Amen. That's what happened. You know, Jesus, when Jesus was talking to his disciples after he'd insulted the Pharisees by critiquing their Corban law and explaining that the traditions of the elders actually contradict 
contradict God's law and lead to uh, you know, obscuring it. Um, and the disciples came in, I think, after that, and said, you really, you really insulted the Pharisees. They're really upset. And he's just, I don't care what they're, I don't care what they're upset. And then he goes on. He's saying, tell me, hey, look, you know, it's not what goes into your body that, 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 that corrupts you. It's not something, it's, you're not being corrupted by outside forces. You're not being corrupted by what you eat. You're not being corrupted by what you drink. You're not being corrupted by, by the things that come into your heart. You're being corrupted because of, because of your heart, the things that flow out of your heart. Uh, there's where adultery lies. There's where uh, murder lies. There's where lies lie. Uh, <laughs> all of that, all of that, is from the human heart. So if that's not changed, I don't care what kind of external pressures you put on society. I don't care what kind of laws you pass. I don't care what kind of what kind of structural changes you make. Ultimately, it's going to collapse, or or it's going to be corrupted from within because because if human hearts aren't changed, that system is right. going down. That's right. And that's actually what happened to me when I was in college, I was aspirations and I basically had no question that I was going to go be a politician. I, I guess I wouldn't say I was a conversion, but it was kind of a deepening, kind of a real awakening in my heart. I had this real sort of um, this, this sea change in my perspective and said that the only thing you could do in politics is erect walls. That's it. That's the only thing a law can do is protect and coerce and, and constrain the only real hope for genuine human change and freedom and redemption was the human heart, which came through the preaching of the gospel. And so, you know, there's, there's a role for government and there's a role for politics and there's a role for people in act, uh, involving themselves in, in hopefully bringing, you know, what the Old Testament says, uh, you know, bringing down unjust weights and measures, you know, bringing down un- injustice where we can see it. I mean, and Christians should, should participate in that political arena as much as they can, but that's only going to go from a worldly perspective into as far as a law that will offense, you know, that will constrain or threaten or otherwise um, limit someone. But what we're involved in is actually bringing new life, as we've talked about, to, to the dead, you know, bringing, bringing redemption for the heart, which, again, um, is not the only word, but it is the first word of the church. And from that, the church is built, which then brings the kingdom um, to, to, to the world. A great example of this is, is, is are the, you know, the equal equality laws. Uh, so we have laws in our nation that prohibit people from uh, in, in employment and in other areas discriminating on the base of race, basis of race. And there's a great deal of shame, rightly so, associated with any kind of racial, racist speech. But does that really, ch- does someone who is actually has ethnic prejudice in their heart changed by that? I mean, do they, do they really, are they just shutting up because they don't want to be shamed and they don't want to lose right. their job and they want to keep their business going? Probably. So, so you don't really have actual, you don't actually have actual transformation of a society. You have, like you say, people restrained by threats. Right. Um, whereas if that same person hears the gospel, believes in Jesus, is joined as one body to people who are of other tribes, nations, and tongues, that's right. Th- th- he is he is ontologically one with <laughs> those right. people through the, through the indwelling of the Spirit, and Christ begins that that renovation where oh, this is my brother. Oh, I'm a sinner like this person is. My my skin color, my ethnicity is just as wicked that's right as the other person well it's like philemon philemon and onesimus i mean like that's the thing paul could have said philemon you know now now you know what you should do and you need to um 
you know, uh, if you Favorite backslide races. or whatever, right. if you don't, that's right. Or you could have, you could have done anything except for the fact that by the power of the spirit, your new brotherhood in Christ yeah. to this person who you once saw as your inferior <clears throat> is now your brother. Well, I wanted to say one more thing, just wrapping up what you said, Matt, about the law not actually being able to affect the change that the heart needs. This is what St. Paul says incredibly clearly in Romans 8, 3, when he says that God accomplished what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. He sent Jesus Christ to actually make true the thing that the law required rightfully, but couldn't actually produce on its own. So it's not, so it's not bad to say, okay, let's try to, if, if our, if our laws regarding ethnicity are unjust, Absolutely, every Christian should support the change of those yes. laws. But yeah. also, no Christian should think the change of those laws represents the establishment of the kingdom on earth. Right. Because it doesn't. Right. It is interesting that, and we talked about this like three weeks ago, and we talked about the Anglican Compass Statement on um, on ethnicity, is that, you know, it's been the first half of the statement kind of indicting the ACNA for its quote-unquote racism. Um, and then they had those three confessions. You know, we confess, uh, we confess our participation in, the, in wicked systems. We confess the horrible thoughts of our hearts about race, whatever. It was through three confessions. But then, remember, instead of okay, now we also re- we also recognize that that the blood of Christ has been shed for us and we've been forgiven, right. and so now we can go together. We can move forward as brothers and sisters, regardless of our color and ethnicity, and uh, and help. Instead, nope, there was a program. Here's what you can do. Now you support this program, you support that program, you support that program, you support that program. Here are the political acts that you can take to to make up, to do penance for your your earlier beliefs. I don't think that changes anything or helps anybody. And that includes intra-church changes you can make too. You can you can now move the kingdom mandate from the world where we're supposed to be creating the kingdom in the world to actually inside the church, where we need to be renovating the church itself, notably each individual local church, not the church large C writ large worldwide, but your church needs to reflect the kingdom of God, especially as revealed in Revelation 7, this sort of wonderful and beautiful multi-ethnic, multi-vocal community, all worshiping God together. That's what your church in whatever town you're in should look like. This is sort of the other end Mm -hmm. of the kingdom mandate. So how do we react to this version of the mandate? I I think it's an impossible, that was also in that Anglican Company statement, where your church, your your congregation and the denomination should reflect the society that that it's placed in. And and of course, I think that, I do think there's like, a probability that if you're preaching the gospel in every to every community, right. that that you probably will end up reflecting in some ways the, the the makeup of of a given community. But that's not a mandate. That's what God does through the preaching of the gospel. It's a promise, uh, as it is in Revelation promise. seven. Exactly, and he might, and he and he may not do that. That's that's another thing. Is he may there may be some communities, ethnic communities, classes. Uh, age groups that remain hard-hearted at the pre- uh, when the gospel is preached to them, and that's 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 not necessary. Ch- that's not the church's fault. If the church if the church is preaching the gospel, uh, we don't have the authority or power to determine the heart change inside 
any individual or or community. All we can do is is preach the gospel. The rest really is up to up to God. So if you make that a mandate, you make that a law that our our churches reflect, you know, Revelation seven, then what you're actually requiring is that we stop preaching the gospel and allowing God to do his work through the word. And we find some artificial means of bringing in more people of of a, of a given category, um, some some way to uh, market the church to this category and to that category and to this space and that space. And pretty soon, we're not preaching the actual gospel anymore. We're advertising for an organization in the community. It's certainly a rewriting of Isaiah 55, right? My my word will go out from me and you better guarantee that it accomplishes the purposes that <laughs> you better I make you. sure it doesn't come back empty okay. right. right yeah and it brings in a question it brings in a question the very thing that we've been preaching um at least in the modern western you know christian world um uh, about about genuine uh, genuine reconciliation like uh, have we been lying that there is no male or female Jew or Greek or slave or free? Have we been lying about that in the church? I mean, and now we have to somehow backtrack and say that that actually, you know, there's all these these things that we have been complicit in and and we need to confess about. Or have we, however imperfectly, still come to the foot of the cross together in our sort of you know variety of our ethnicities and our backgrounds and our our shapes and sizes and actually found some unity. In, in a world that knows nothing of this unity outside of Christ. I mean, it's, and that's, I mean, I think that's really, for me, part of the, the danger in these sort of, um, these sort of public confessions of things, you know, about the complicity that we are all um, labeled in is that, that we have been actually preaching something contrary to that for 2000 years. Now, yes, it has been imperfectly recognized and our grandchildren will look back on the ways that we were um, flawed and, and, you know, looking through a glass darkly as much as we do our own grandparents, mm-hmm. but that we were still preaching and hearing the same thing and working to the same ends from the same starting point in the church, which is that you are all one in Christ Jesus, uh, will not change. And so, you know, to confess that somehow that has not been, at the very least, the, the aspirational and faithful confessional reality of the church however imperfectly realized is i'm not gonna i'm not gonna sign on to something like that because we have been preaching um and teaching and proclaiming this for two thousand years and as you said matt i think it's perfectly reasonable to think that certain kinds of churches need to make more of an effort to raise up leaders from certain kinds of communities and uh, plant churches in certain areas and make an effort to as Jesus calls us to, to proclaim his news to the ends of the earth. Now, that said, churches are, as I would prefer to conceive them, they are big C institutions. We, we are the church. So as long as we are about this work together, I don't necessarily think that your church or somebody else's church or my church has a particular calling in terms of reflecting this heavenly worshiping community, as long as we, the church, in our unified mission on earth, are doing that. I remember the first time I, I, uh, I realized there was a problem, and this was in um, Plano. There was a conference in Plano, uh, Christchurch there, and Scott McKnight, to name names, was, was this keynote speaker at this particular conference, and his 
he took as his text Luke 16 and uh, the par parable of, of Lazarus and the rich man. And he spent his entire, his entire talk explaining how, how that text had been distorted by the church. And it really is about the virtue and God's preference for the poor over the rich and how God will punish rich people for not doing social service for the poor. It doesn't have anything to do with, it doesn't really have anything with heaven and hell, the eternality of hell, uh, all that stuff about, you know, the chasm and no mention of why, well, I guess it, the, the reason why McKnight was sure, was, was suggested that the rich man went to hell and the poor man went to heaven is because of the class. <laughs> not, not because of well, possibly the poor man having faith and the rich man not, and God not showing any partiality, um, but because of because of class, it just completely yeah. eviscerated that text and made it all about how we enact quote unquote kingdom principles on earth. And I walked out of there thinking I was stunned. I couldn't believe what I heard. It, he had to ignore a good half of that text to come out with that reading. Yep. Um, and there were lots of ACNA people there, big, big shot ACNA people there listening to that, swallowing it, um, taking it in as gospel truth. Well, and that's a perfect example. I mean, when your gospel message begins to sound like basically what other non-Christian people consider to be what the gospel would sound like, if they could write it, you know, that didn't have anything to do with sin or uh, Jesus' death or redemption. Well, then you might, this is where um, the, the problem lies, is that, is that when we begin to think that we have a better idea of what the world should look like um, than what God is unfolding through his providence, and um, then, then we're going to, to take matters into our own hands. And we're going to decide that this is, these are the laws that need to be enacted. This is what the shape of it looks like. This is the, the way the church should look. I mean, the number of people who have this idea that the reason the church is either succeeding or failing is because it doesn't look the right way or it needs to look some other way, you know, like these manuals on church growth or these manuals on, you know, evangelism about how to attract millennials or whatever the case is. And it's all, it's all predicated on a faithless understanding of, of one, why people come to church, two, what actually happens when people are converted, and three, the power of the actual gospel when it chains someone, you know, to the cross. And, you know, the more people that we have simply chained to the cross who are then by default impacting the love of their neighbor in every conceivable way, however imperfectly, well, then, then we will see the marks of the kingdom grow because, again, it'll be the righteousness, the peace, and the joy of the Holy Spirit that'll be our, that'll be our song. I feel like all of this is reminding me of the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 13, which coincidentally was the reading that I preached on in my church this last week of the wheat and the weeds where a man sows good seed in his field and an enemy comes while he's asleep and sows weeds all throughout it. And then as the plants grow up together, the servants, uh, us, come to the master and say, what happened? The weeds are growing in your field. And the master says, well, an enemy has done this. And then we, in our helpful way, say, do you want us to start taking care of it? Do you want us to fix things around here? Do you want us to participate in making this field the way it ought to be? And counterintuitively to our human ears, the master says, no, don't 
try to pull out the weeds, you're going to pull out a lot of the wheat with them. You actually can't tell the difference very well. Why don't you leave it to me? And of course, the frustrating thing for us as we interpret the story is that the harvest comes at the end of the age. And so it's sort of a frustrating thing to understand that we're going to be living in a weedy world. We wheat will grow up with the weeds and we're not going to be able to fix the situation by our own work, but we do have the promise that it will be taken care of, that we are not the saviors of the world that Jesus in fact is. He says, you don't do it. You can't tell the difference. I'll do it. And I feel like this has something to say to us about this endeavor, this work to try to bring the kingdom to fruition here where we're trying to do something that God has promised that he will do. Yeah, I think that's, that's huge. And that parable is an extremely helpful image to use when we're engaging with people who, who think otherwise. Uh, I think every uh, mass murderous political system that we can point to in the 20th century was founded on getting rid of the, rid of the tares. How can, how can we get rid of the tares and produce That's utopia? Right right now right here well you know there's gotta you gotta break some eggs before you can have some before you can have some scrambled eggs yeah, and on the, yeah, under the auspices set, right? of freedom too i've come to bring you freedom you know i've come to bring you um you know this is this is for your own good you know it's how this all been working so so the, the, and, the, and, the, and i love that you know i don't know what where people stand eschatologically i know that um the uh, post mill position is gaining steam in some places <laughs> Uh, you're you're chuckling. I, I, you, you sounds like a future podcast. Indicated you were a still guy there, but I, I think I've come, I'm I going, think that I'm going back and forth in my time and <laughs> my, my realized eschatology. So I'm uh, <laughs> I think that I think that parable is a clear a clear rebuke to our post mill <laughs> uh, brothers brothers and sisters because we're not going to be the ones to sort out the evil Christ is he's going to he's going to be the ones who he's going to be the one who when he comes uh, untangle the weeds from from the wheat uh, not us and so i think one of the big problems in in this system the the, the system of social justice that we see being pushed in the church, or this this type of social justice being pushed in the church and in the world, and a problem that it shares with the name it, claim it, prosperity gospel movement is the tendency to immunitize the eschaton, to say, yeah, we're going to have everything that God promises for the for the consummation of the kingdom right here, right now. And there's 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 a problem. The problem is why isn't it here and now? And for the claim name it, claim it, prosperity gospel people is and the problem is you just aren't our faith. If you had enough faith, you could immunize the eschaton. And for the the social justice warrior Christian, it is well, you're just not working hard enough. You're just you're, you're not pushing the systems hard enough. You're not following this program. That's why that's why everything's messed up, and we don't have the kingdom here now. Now you could see it just as a not devil's advocate, but just as an alternative <laughs> viewpoint. You could see the judgment having come at the quote-unquote end of the age with the resurrection of Christ. And therefore, uh, the righteousness, peace, and joy that comes with the kingdom is the peace that the wheat have, that the tares about the weeping and gnashing of teeth do not evince. Therefore, this weeping and gnashing of teeth, which you see like in the streets around world and cities in the streets and throughout history about where is the kingdom, you know, you could argue so that So it's not about tares, eternal judgment? Well, no, it is about eternal judgment. I mean, I think the judgment comes, the judgment comes finally 
but it also comes proleptically in the cross. I mean, because I think the final judgment has already been has already been revealed. Because as Peter says, you know, this man that you crucified is coming back. So that that cuts people to the heart. Um, and so, you know, people get ready. Jesus is coming, you know, sort of thing. But it's, it's both and. I think that the, the peace of the kingdom is evinced in the freedom of the weed to allow for God to ultimately uproot the tares in wherever they may be found. Um, and that we would, we would endeavor to... Um, have more wheat than tares in our church um, is a given, you know, if you're taking the, the analogy, but trusting that God is allowing both to grow up and that in his wisdom will finally make the, the, the decisive judgment gives us the freedom to simply rest in the proclamation of the gospel, trusting that the good seeds that he sowed will find purchase and bear fruit. And that's, that's a little bit of the, that's the confidence I take from it. Um, but I, I agree with you also. I think that the impetus of the disciples to uproot the tares in the, in the parable is definitely the same impetus that, that says, well, the kingdom is not coming uh, wheatly enough. Let's go ahead and get our uh, garden weasel out. You know, that amazing infomercial thing that uproots all the weeds and get to work on this church to make it look more like the kingdom. And, um, and Jesus is rightly uh, saying, you know, let me take care of that. You stick to what I've told you to do, and let's see what happens. We are teetering on the precipice of an entirely other discussion. You can, <laughs> you can, you can, you can moderate a debate between. I theological debate. You guys can I'm each try sure to I'm, convince me a, of your position. This is the beauty of free speech: is that I'm not actually sure what I've. I mean, I've read extensively in all these positions, and and I, in order to to kind of try them on and to, um, and to kind of work it out. I have to have a conversation with someone about yeah. it. I'm not exactly sure. And I'm not, I mean, this, I don't think sure anyone has written the final um, statement on eschatological sort of in times uh, realities, but at the very least, it's just like we talked about before. It certainly affects your teaching, preaching and pastoring, you know? And so I'm wrestling with that. I have to say, and I get, you know, I have, I have sort of the, the best, proponents of the varieties of, of, um, of theological systems in mind, and they all, they all get along, you know, but they definitely have their disagreements. And so uh, anyway, that's just where I, that's where I land on that particular issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, we, um, we have come to the end of our time. Are there any final words about uh, the kingdom mandate that y'all want to share in one minute or less? I think it's I think it's a false gospel. I think I think that it's a proclamation of the law, and it's a it's a pro, it's an imposition of the law, in place of the gospel, and it's a it's a real threat to the I think some quarters of the ACNA right now, um, paired with as it usually is, uh, an embrace an embracing of the Christus Victor model of the atonement, to the exclusion of substitutionary atonement. It represents a new or not a new, but a but a, a distortion of the message that Christ came to save sinners, and it allows you to externalize that message so that it doesn't have to impact your heart, and you don't have to think of yourself as a sinner, and consider how the gospel might be uh, calling you to repentance and to be remade by Christ. Amen. Uh, those are good yeah, final words. Said. 
<laughs> we're gonna we're gonna end on those words thank you matt uh we have of course just scratched the surface of this topic as always we are grateful uh to our listeners for listening for emailing for giving us a rating on itunes and for taking the time to think through these things with us if you'd like to join the conversation or suggest a topic for a future episode you can send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. That's it for now. Thanks to Matt Kennedy and J.D. Koch. Our pledge to you is to bring J.D. Koch back to civilization next week where he can have real internet. Uh, I'm Nick Lannon. We'll be back then. And until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. (laughs) 